This is Garth from the lost cabin somewhere in rural Massachusetts. I'm preparing my traditional Thanksgiving dinner, but there's no turkey on the table. Keep listening and find out why. This is Lost Massachusetts. So what is this thing that we call Thanksgiving? For many of us, it's about the three F's, family, food, and football. But its origins are tied to the fourth F, and that's faith. Food is actually a very important part of the core story. It's a, uh, it's a big piece of the concept. But the food that we eat now is completely different to what would have been eaten at the original Thanksgiving that is considered at least the original Thanksgiving in Plymouth, Massachusetts. But let's start with the Pilgrims and where they originated and where their idea of a Thanksgiving may have come from. The period of the Pilgrims is actually part of the late Renaissance period. We might think of the Renaissance uh, as a time of castles and knights and dragons or wizards or something, but that was kind of the Europe that uh, the Renaissance was emerging from. It was a 300-year period where new ideas came into the public square and uh, they generated change and upheaval. So why am I telling you this? What does it have to do with Massachusetts? It actually has everything to do with Massachusetts. King Henry VIII removed the Catholic Church from England as a uh, governing political, spiritual, and social entity. Henry began the process of replacing old Catholic institutions with new traditions, and this included common feasts or holidays. Traditional holidays were replaced with days of thanksgiving that centered around more recent events rather than the events in the lives of Christian saints that may have happened hundreds of years earlier. Now, if they survived a war or some kind of natural disaster, they would celebrate that with a day or days of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving has emerged from a jumble of historic events and declarations. Let's start with what is assumed about the background of Thanksgiving. Very simply, the pilgrims in Massachusetts were starving, and in November, the Massachusetts natives showed them how to plant corn and supplied them with food, and then the two groups shared a feast. It's assumed that this uh, third Thursday in November marks that day, and we eat a bunch of food like turkey and mashed potatoes, uh, which are considered traditional. There are many aspects of the story that are true-ish and others that are, well, retrofitted on top of the holiday through the years. The first item of dispute is the location. If you're from Virginia, you might believe that Virginia had the first American Thanksgiving. If you grew up in New England like me, you probably never heard of that Virginia claim. And, uh... 
any kind of uh, discussion of such a thing would have gotten you ridicule, ridicule or worse. But to be sure, the Virginia colony established uh, the year before Plymouth had a Thanksgiving celebration after arriving safely. The second detail of Virginia's Thanksgiving leads to the next point of historical confusion, the timing of Thanksgiving. The Virginia celebration was on December 4th, but that's in Virginia. Back in Massachusetts, why November? Well, the Pilgrims landed on Cape Cod in November, but on the 11th, not on the fourth week of November, and they actually didn't even get off the boat until December. And you might be wondering, well, if Virginia came up with this idea first, well, why aren't we uh, focusing on that tradition? And the answer is, that settlement was destroyed three years later. So what does the common story tell us about the timing? The story tells us that the pilgrims were starving and the natives helped them with food. So this happened, but not necessarily in the sequence many people might imagine. To be sure, the pilgrims starved their first winter in Massachusetts to the point that half of them died during that winter. And during that deadliest of times, they were alone with no real assistance from anyone. And actually, they spent most of their time on the Mayflower. Later on that year, the natives Samoset and Squanto eventually appeared to help them with planting and other food sources, and then arranged for them to meet with their leader, Massasoit, to exchange gifts. But these events occurred in March of 1621. Yep, that's right, March. So what are we talking about? Well, ultimately, the final festival meal was actually a harvest celebration when they had their first successful harvest. And this was a celebration that occurred over three or even more days, and it vaguely happened sometime between September and December in 1621. It's possible that the pilgrims based their celebration on a celebration that they witnessed in Holland while they were living there. And it's also possible that they borrowed traditions from the Massachusetts natives who had their own harvest celebrations. But of course, anybody who's familiar with a harvest, it doesn't end on a specific day. It all depends on the weather, the temperature, the amount of rain you get, and how hard you work. There is no particular day that a harvest ends on. So how did we get a particular day from this jumble of history? The first person to put an official pin on a particular day was President George Washington, who set it at Thursday, November 26th, specifically the 26th. And it had nothing to do with pilgrims. It had everything to do with the Revolutionary War and the suffering and survival of his troops during that period. He declared a national day of thanksgiving to honor that. The next official assignment 
came later from Abraham Lincoln, who also did it in reference to the suffering of the Civil War. He believed that there should be a National Day of Thanksgiving, and he said it at the last Thursday in November. Not the fourth Thursday in November, but wherever the last Thursday in November is. And, of course, sometimes we have November calendar with five Novembers. Now, fast forward from the uh, Civil War to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was constantly lobbied by retailers to move Thanksgiving back a week. And the reason they wanted it moved back a week is so people would have that extra week to go shopping before Christmas. And actually, FDR turned down these requests for many years. It wasn't until 1941 that he begrudgingly assigned it as the fourth Thursday in November. So then we're talking about holidays that came about following conflict and requests from retailers. So none of these things have anything to do with food and they have nothing to do with pilgrims and Wampanoags. So where does all this come from? We're going to have to roll back to the original material. The settlers, as many as were able, then began to plant their corn in which service Squanto stood them in good stead. Showing them how to plant it and cultivate it, he also told them that unless they got fish to manure the exhausted old soil, it would come to nothing. And he showed them that in the middle of April plenty of fish would come up the brook by which they begun to build, and taught them how to catch it, and where to get other necessary provisions, all of which they found true by experience. They sowed some English seed, such as wheat and peas, but it came to no good, either because of the badness of the seed or the lateness of the season, or by some other defect. So that was a brief reading from the History of Plymouth by William Bradford, who was one of the pilgrims who became prominent in the community. And he wrote what is considered to be sort of the defining text of the era. And for a book that is 400 years old, it's shockingly readable. And so the spelling has been updated in the copy I've had, but... You have to understand that this comes from the same period as Shakespeare, and if, of course if you studied Shakespeare in school, you would remember that the margins of the plays are full of help text, which explain what many of the words mean and what the context of what the characters are talking about. And this really doesn't have that kind of problem in the text. It was written by somebody who was a very sort of plain and somewhat ordinary person. It wasn't written for the theater, but it still comes from that same period. Before we go into the details of the food, 
Let's take a moment to talk about Squanto, who is the person who actually saves their lives and shows them how to uh, get food. Squanto was a superhero. He deserves his own epic movie or TV series. Uh, The adventures and exploits of his life are fantastic and go way beyond Plymouth. But that's all I can really say now. Uh, It really kind of deserves its own section. So one of the things that is mentioned in that section of the text and is connected to pretty much every story about the pilgrims and their experience is they mention corn. Okay, corn was a big element in their survival, their ability to grow and eat and make other food stuff from corn. But think about that for a second. What's something that you often do not see on a Thanksgiving table? You often don't see corn. At least I don't remember seeing it on most of the Thanksgiving tables that I've ever been to. And sometimes I remember when I was younger... I would ask uh, if there was going to be any corn with the meal, and I would get funny looks from people. So that's one thing that they would have been eating that people might not be eating now. The next food item or food items that uh, may shock you concerning the pilgrims was their consumption of alcohol. Now, the Pilgrims are often conflated with the Puritans. The Pilgrims were religious pilgrims. They were a religious sect that was trying to separate from uh, European faiths. But they were not Puritans. The Puritans were a completely different group of people that ended up settling north of them uh, in Boston as part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And that colony ended up sort of absorbing the Plymouth colony. The the Puritans were extremely strict in their lifestyle, but this was not necessarily true of the pilgrims in Plymouth. The pilgrims drank beer, and drinking beer would have been an extremely ordinary part of any meal that they had, and they probably had a hard time getting beer at the beginning of their uh, colonial experience. But they also would drink fermented apple cider. And it's not widely known, but anybody who's familiar with the Mayflower voyage, you might know that one of the timbers in the ship cracked while they were crossing the Atlantic. And they used this giant sort of corkscrew device to push the beam back up and hold it in place. And of course, that device, that machine that they used to hold the beam in place was in fact a cider press. So far as we reconstruct our menu, we have corn and possibly some sort of alcoholic beverage if they still had it on the ship or could manage to eke it out some way. Um, For the rest of our Thanksgiving menu, we're going to look at the journal of a different English settler. His name was Edward Winslow. Many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, 
which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. So there you have it. The uh, original Plymouth Thanksgiving main course is not turkey. The main course is deer or venison. So how would they have prepared, how would they likely have prepared a venison main course in the 17th century? Well, it just so happens I have in front of me a cookbook, or at least a compiled cookbook from the 17th century by Donald Daly, which is a compilation of uh, different recipes from the period that was put together and published in 1992 by the New England and Virginia Company of Salem, Massachusetts. And uh, listen in, and it actually sounds pretty good if you've never had venison before. It's worth a try. Some people like it and some people don't. But it has a common New England staple in the recipe that may make it appetizing to everyone. Venison cooked with maple syrup. Five pounds venison roast. One and a half cups pure maple syrup. One half a teaspoon each of ginger, clove, mace, flour, salt, and pepper. One medium-sized onion, one teaspoon of cinnamon, one cup of red wine, and one tablespoon of olive oil. Heat oil in a Dutch oven. Flour venison and brown in oil. Add sliced onion, wine, and one half cups of water. Bring to a boil, reduce, heat, cover, let it stew for one and a half hours. Add more water or wine if necessary. Add maple syrup to Dutch oven and continue to cook for an additional 30 to 40 minutes. Remove venison, slice, and serve with the maple syrup from the pot. There will be some other surprising items on the menu, but first let's talk turkey. Turkey does find its way onto the pilgrim's table eventually, and is mentioned specifically by Bradford, but it was simply just another bird they would have caught and eaten along with geese and, believe it or not, swans. No one would think of eating a swan, but tastes change over time. The turkey they would have eaten wouldn't have been the giant 16-pound monster we cook today. Those are farmed turkeys. If you've ever seen a wild turkey, and uh, we are overrun by them where I live, they are much smaller than a farm-raised turkey. Farm-raised turkeys also have white feathers. The dark feathers of wild turkeys come from what they eat in the wild. It gives them more of a dark pigment. We also have this mysterious name of turkey, and people often wonder what they call turkey in the country of turkey. The Turkish word for the bird turkey is Hindi. Hindi, of course, refers to India, the country. 
Turkeys are known for their feathers, much like a peacock. So Europeans would call birds with that kind of exotic plumage as a Turkish bird, which people in Turkey would call an Indian bird. And that, of course, makes the whole situation even more confusing. How we came to eat turkey was something that happened gradually. In most American cities, you'll notice the abundance of pigeons. Pigeons didn't start out in North America. They were shipped here as food. But as Europeans began to get access to larger wild birds, they lost interest in eating pigeons. And Europe at that time was crowded and overpopulated, hence the interest in leaving for the colonies across the Atlantic, especially if they heard about lots of different types of exotic animals that were larger and easier to get. You'll still see pigeon and squab in fancy restaurants, which I've had and enjoyed, but it just doesn't stand up to a nice juicy turkey. The other items would have included things common to New England. Seafood, lots of seafood, lobster, clams, oysters, etc. They would have had pumpkins, but no sweet potatoes. They also would have had cranberries, which grow in bogs near Plymouth, but since they had no refined sugar, the taste would have been bitter, but actually much healthier. So where does our modern sense of a specific November Thanksgiving come from? One that ties the holiday to Plymouth's pilgrims? But even though pilgrims and others continue to have specific harvest festivals, this particular tradition doesn't emerge for about 200 years during the period leading up to the Civil War. Northerners, particularly New Englanders, were searching for identity in a time when the fight over slavery was beginning to break the U.S. into pieces. And this was made official by Abraham Lincoln. As the holiday took hold, more common American foods, like potatoes, were added to the table. However, there is one particular dish that was not on the pilgrim's table. The Wampanoags didn't eat it either, and it also wasn't part of any meal eaten by Abraham Lincoln. It's something that I make every year, and I was under the false impression for a long time that it was an old French-Canadian or Scottish recipe because I learned it from my grandmother. But this Thanksgiving dish was invented out of somebody's imagination in 1955. I'm, of course, talking about green bean casserole. But let's get back to Plymouth, and particularly Bradford's journal. We're recreating our lost Thanksgiving menu, but this marks a pivotal moment in time. The peace and cohabitation that is referenced in the celebration didn't last long. And if you listen to my first episode, you'll remember that this begins the process of one era of Massachusetts becoming lost. But one of the reasons we're here is to recreate that lost world. Bradford's journal references names and locations of native communities that can still be found and explored today. His journal also discusses other European settlements that failed and were completely forgotten by history. 
Plymouth itself is the product of being lost, and it was actually lost twice. First of all, the Pilgrims were never supposed to land in Massachusetts. They were actually deeded a colony somewhere else, closer to other English settlements further down the U.S. coastline. Second, when one of the crew members picked Plymouth as the location for their plantation, he actually thought that he was at the mouth of the Charles River, where Boston is today. Just the beginning of our exploration. If you hang out after the commercial, I'll actually give you my full lost Thanksgiving menu. Thanks for listening, as always. Our lost Thanksgiving menu. Oyster stew with onions, clam stew with onions, fried lobster, fried pumpkin, fried squash, duck with turnips and chestnuts, smoked eel, and of course, the maple venison from the recipe. Everything served with corn and cranberries. Wash it down with either fermented cider or imported beer. And yes, to keep it authentic, the beer should be warm. Enjoy. Thanks for joining me while I eat my maple-infused Thanksgiving venison. We hope that you'll join us again as we go on more lost journeys through Massachusetts' twisted roads of history. For now, this is Garth in the lost cabin somewhere in rural Massachusetts saying it's always 1928 somewhere. <laughs>